Okay, so there's this seemingly endless dichotomy between value investors and growth investors. Although they're all trying to, you know, pick stocks and use very fundamental ways to look at the stock market, um, they do have very different strategies. But can you do both? Are you able to kind of marry the essence of both ways of investing to come together to build your own portfolio? I think there are some ways to go about it and that's what we're going to do today. Welcome to another Chills with TFC session. In this series, we hope to bring on interesting, relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with. Perspectives shape around the thinker. So in our pursuit of life, we love on managing our finances well. Our guest for today is someone that has took the path less traveled, meandered around and somehow found his way from stock-picking enthusiast to becoming a fund manager. Yes, he started his own fund and runs a very popular stock-picking blog in Singapore. He has a great mix of value and growth investing and he's here to share with us how he sees the market. So let's welcome Sitting from the Good Investor. Do you want, do you want to like see your disclaimer first? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My disclaimer is for entertainment only. Anyway, Sitting will say it. Yeah, yeah. And um, nothing I say in this uh, podcast should be taken to be financial advice. Um, nothing I say should be seen as a recommendation of any financial product or any, any investment vehicle. And nothing I say should be seen as an um, offer to invest in any financial product or uh, investment vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> I know you need to do it. I just find it very funny. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a regulatory thing, right? So it's important. It's yeah. important. It's important. Yeah. I'm not discounting that, but I just find it funny. <laughs> so it's, it's good. Yeah. So, you know, based on what I hear, you're like net buyers. You buy yeah. a lot of companies, right? You buy and buy and buy. Yeah. You compound over yeah. time, right? I mean, that's the central name, right? Yeah. Compounder fund. Duh. Right? So you buy and buy. Um, when do you guys sell your companies? Right. So I think for us, we actually try very hard not to sell anything. I think the only time we really would sell is if we do not have any capital infusions and we find that you know uh, we really would like to own a new company, but there's no longer any additional capital to do so. And then that's when we would say, okay, perhaps time to sell. And when we sell, um, our focus would really be on the companies that are executing the poorest in terms of their business. Yeah, so these would be our like uh, primary targets uh, to sell. Yeah. So what you're trying to tell me, it is a lot about capital flow rather than like market sentiments or like mm -hmm. business performance. Mm -hmm. right? Capital is the, the main thing. Uh, not so much. So, like, uh, there will, I think, also be cases where, like, you know, if it's just very clear that our investment um, thesis is wrong, then that we may also sell. Like, for example, if uh, if one of our investments turns out to be, like, a massive fraud, for example, let's like, say, Luckin Coffee, right? Oh. And then if, like, there's a window for us to get some capital back because, like, the shares may, may initially be suspended, but, like, if trading is resumed, you know, then I think it's time uh, to let go. So there will be cases where we would sell, but I, I think uh, I think a better way to put it would be that it would ultimately be driven by the performance of the business. But as much as possible, we will not like to be selling. The, and the reason why we are kind of averse to selling is also because I think it's very important to continuously hone the discipline of being patient and not wanting to like be trigger happy to sell. Because I think that the really good and really strong gains from the stock market can come from holding really good companies over the long run. And if you do not have the discipline to, to hold on, then uh, that can also affect your returns. And so I think that like, it's important to not be willing to sell uh, that easily because that will help to grow and build that, that um, muscle 
to enable you to hold on even to your winners. Mm. Yeah. And when you say performance of the business, do you mm. mean like the performance of your fund or the performance of you know, the companies? Oh, no, no, the holding? companies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because if you translate whatever you just said, you know, into a retail guy, mm-hmm. right? As long as they have consistently pumped money in, mm-hmm. right? It means they got a consistent mm-hmm. income and they keep pumping money in, mm-hmm. then there's no real reason to sell it. Okay. That is very true if the individual investor is able to add new inflows of capital to good investment opportunities. I think one big mistake that I often see is that they often add to the companies that are not doing well. They buy the losers. They buy the losers, yeah. (laughs) Then they rebalance, quote-unquote rebalance. Yeah, sometimes it works. I mean, like, sometimes mean reversion happens and and adding to losers work. But... Action word is sometimes. Yeah, the the word (laughs) is sometimes... But how you define the losers, I think, is also important. Like you can you can add to a company with a lower share price but growing business. I think I think that makes sense. But if you add to a company with a lower share price because the business is just getting getting Wallowed up, yeah, right. Then I think that can be a very dangerous uh, uh, way to proceed. And then if that happens, right, and then the investor every, every time there's an inflow of capital it adds to the losers, and the losers happen to be the businesses that are in just secular long term decline. Mm. Then you know, there's just no. It's just going to be a very bad use of capital. Totally agree. Like, what what are some long term secular decline that you think mm-hmm. it's 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 happening? Uh, so I think like you can you can actually see this in, uh, the more old school industries, uh, especially the ones that are unable to like uh make a transition to digital. Like for example, if you look at say brick and mortar retail, like there are brick and mortar retail companies that have done really well over the past twenty years, even. You know, th- with the rise of of the internet, but then there are ones that are just get smashed because like they are just unable to to adapt, right? And so I think it's more important to think about like what are the businesses that are able to adapt and what are the ones that are unable to. Like, uh, I I don't really believe in you know just uh targeting say okay you know this industry is one that's in long term secular decline. I give you an example, right? Like I think in the thirty years or twenty years ended say two thousand three or two thousand four, the best performing stock in the US market, right? Make a guess what industry it come from. Supermarket. Supermarket. Okay, I'll give you another two tries. Mm, oil and gas. And uh, last try? <laughs> what the hell? Um, I don't know. Retail brands? So the the best performing stock came from the airlines industry. Oh, airlines? Southwest Airlines. Yeah, that was the best performing stock in, I think, the 20 or 30 years ended 2003 or 2004. So my numbers may be a little bit off, but Fair. it was the best performing stock in really? that year. Really? Yeah. And the reason is because it was just an airline company that was just doing so well as a business. And so what I think is more important is to look at the individual companies and not so much the individual and not and not think so much about like industries and saying that oh you know if it's this company is in this industry it must be it must be a mm. um some lousy company that I wouldn't want to touch yeah. Yeah. but yeah. you just need to be cognitively aware that there is a secular shift in this sector yeah yeah ways, correct right? correct and and but if even things. even if there's a secular shift like you know you you may end up with one or two companies like ju- that just for some reason are Dominated. able to navi- navigate yeah. that secular shift mm. really well mm. and mm. you know then those could yeah, be very yeah, interesting yeah. as like well. Like some of the retail brands, they go omni-channel and, and you know... Like yeah, yeah, and, and it's the omni-channel yeah. and it's the only the ones who do really well with the omni-channel ones that are, that are, they are doing well as, as a business. Yeah. Right? It informs what to buy, what to develop, you yeah. know, and then informs their product line yeah, and yeah. then better their experience in stores. Like, yeah. wow, the amazing how they yeah. use data. And, and, right? and actually, I think uh, when it comes to retail, it's not so much... 
I, I, I don't think the future is one where, you know, it's just purely online or purely offline. Of course, it's I mean, yeah, we're all stuck at home, right? Nobody enjoys this thing, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Everyone exactly. wants to go out. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's going to be a mixture and like the companies that are able to deliver that, that, that retail experience that combines a mixture of both online mm. and offline in whatever format, I think mm. those are the ones that will um, do well. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, based on what you've talked to us so far, right? I've not heard a single word called valuation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so h- how highly mm-hmm. does you know valuation models actually mm-hmm. come in your decision making mm-hmm. process of buying or selling? So the valuation is important, but I think it's for me it's more important to think about the quality of the business. If I can find a really high quality business, um, I'm really happy, and then then I start thinking about okay, what is the uh, what is the company's uh, valuation like? And when it comes to valuation, my process is also very simple. I tend to look at the appropriate valuation uh, matrix for that particular company. It can be say the price to sales ratio, or the price to earnings, or price to free cash flow, or price to book ratio, right? And then I look at this ratio and I think about okay, there's this company with this uh, amount of uh, business today. Uh, what is this market opportunity like? And uh, what can this business look like five to ten years from now and then I compare it with the current valuation and think that does this make sense but more often than not uh, I think we will only be able to know I think uh, like five to ten years from now but um, I, I think there could be an interesting case of like you know so today we, we, we see a lot of these companies with like really high valuations mm-hmm. but I think that some of these companies today may end up being short term expensive but long term cheap Meaning that mm. there are valuations that look optically high today, mm. but then they are able to produce like incredible uh, growth mm. for mm. quite a number of years in the future. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when you arrive in the future, then you realize when you look back and like, wow, actually, yeah. you know, back then they look cheap. Again, you know, we, we can't really know yeah. for sure yeah. until it actually happens. So you only be able to tell in hindsight. But I have a suspicion that like something like that could potentially happen, not for all companies, but for some. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I think the the point I'm trying to make here is that like when it comes to valuation, I think quality of the business is more important than the valuation of the business. The valuation numbers is just there to have like a ballpark of like is this sensible or not? I mean like for example if uh okay, so so like in you know in the fund uh, we own shares for Amazon, as I mentioned earlier. Um Amazon, I think when we bought it it was probably trading at maybe fifty or sixty times trailing free cash flow. Right, that seems high, you know, um, and especially given the fact that Amazon is already such a huge uh, business. But but we think that it makes it makes sense to to be invested in in Amazon because like we still see a lot of growth opportunities, and also like the fact that we think that Amazon has a higher probability of being able to take advantage of all the growth opportunities that you see. And 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 more most importantly, um, Amazon is the type of company that, that can have multiple paths to grow. Mm. It has this quality that I call optionality. It's a term that uh, I think that I first heard from the Motley Fool's co-founder, David Gardner. It's, it's used to describe companies that you know have the ability to grow in multiple different ways. And I think Amazon is just one of the classic examples of companies with optionality. So the, the idea is that with 50 or 60 times trailing free cash flow for Amazon, we think that it makes sense because like the top line growth is stu- still likely going to be strong for, for yeah. a very long period yeah. of time. But if it's like five or 600 times price to free cash flow at Amazon's current size, then I don't think that makes sense. Mm. So for every company, I think like there, there will be valuations that, that make sense and there will be valuations that don't make sense. But I think the types of valuation figures that can fall into the realm of what is sensible is actually a lot wider than, than people think. Yeah, I, I actually get what you're saying in a sense that 
I mean, if you see from a from a growth perspective, compounding growth perspective, right? If the company's top line grows at 30%, 40%, in two, three years' time, they double up their business, yep. right? So then it directly impacts their valuation yes. in a very simple manner. It's not even some complex no, it's not, you yeah. know, valuation model. Yeah, it's exactly, like, exactly. As long as they grow at 30 40%, two, three years down, they double up. Yeah, exactly. Right? So then their valuation cuts by half based on today's price. Yeah, essentially, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, You're so right. That's a simple math when yeah. you look at it. But I think you talk about Amazon, and my biggest concern with Amazon, since we're on, on the topic of Amazon, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. is that it is a very complex business to understand mm-hmm. for most people. Sure. Right, because you are, you know, from from hobbies to retail to like now you run a fund. Mm-hmm. So you have, for like a better way to put it, you've already moved into a professional. You know, it's like a profession already, <laughs> right? But for the starter guy, that is still like, you know, hey, listening to this podcast, I'm considering how to invest, right? Like, is Amazon even the kind of business that they can comprehend, mm-hmm. you know, in its in its complexity of of evaluating a business? Then will will you even, you know, kind of get them to buy these kind of businesses? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not in the business of getting anybody to buy any, yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. right? Okay, so okay, yeah, 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 I, uh, yeah, correct. Yeah, must clarify, right. so, you know? so so um. I don't think Amazon is uh, that complex a business. Um, ultimately, it's about breaking down what are the key uh, drivers of value for the company. So, so if Amazon is really just um, a few things, right? So first is the e-commerce retail business. The second thing is the uh, cloud computing business, and then I think the third thing would be for now still a young, young kind of young business, and that would be like the digital advertising business. And then the fourth thing would be anything new that pops up under the sun. Anything that the innovation business. And I think that that is where the most interesting part of Amazon is at. Um, okay, so so I'm I'm bringing all this up because right, like so Amazon started off as a e-commerce retail business, and I think maybe in two thousand six or two thousand seven or some somewhere somewhere along those lines, uh, Amazon Web Services was officially launched to the public. But what is really interesting is how Amazon Web Services got launched to the public. So in Amazon's earlier days, Jeff Bezos came up with this idea that Amazon as an organization needed to be architected in a way where it could innovate rapidly um, and not crumble under its own weight. And so what, he, what Jeff Bezos did right, was, was to mandate Amazon's employees to always um, communicate with different departments or different teams via application programming interfaces via APIs. And that is incredibly smart because why? When Amazon has a cost center that is used to support its core business, and if this cost center becomes large enough, it could potentially turn to the service. Amazon's web services' first customer was Amazon's retail business, right? So I think like, if you look at it from this angle, right, Amazon actually becomes to them a very simple business to, to understand because it is just it is a company with a very unique management structure that can allow rapid innovation and incredible innovation to occur. Mm. Yeah. And then and that that is why I think like I don't think it is that difficult to to understand Amazon. You can think of it as like having okay, it's just this e-commerce business that has still a small overall market share from a global and, and US perspective. You have the cloud computing business, which likely has a lot of legs to grow. And then you have the digital advertising business, which is still very small. And then, yeah, the last thing, which is that any new thing under the sun, which, which, will, which will come because of the, just the way that Amazon is built as an organization where, where different teams are forced to communicate with each other via APIs. But the, of, by doing so, right, it just makes it so easy for any 
um, call center or any support service provider to just, you know, at a flip of, okay, I mean, at nearly at the flip of a switch become something that people from outside Amazon can access and then that can become a new mm-hmm. revenue generator for the company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which is why some of these like huge ass innovation companies like, like Google, you know, like Alibaba, like mm-hmm. JD, they, they all have that kind of power, right? Mm-hmm. To, to just kind of spin off something you know, to yeah. which they were using at first yeah. for their own cost center, yeah. right? And then, yeah. and then it just got spin off. It's, it's, I, yeah. I think Amazon is probably the most unique one in that sense where mm-hmm. if you, like like a lot of the major businesses today is just, it just they, they popped up because Amazon happened to, Amazon's core business happened to be like the first customer of their own internal support function. And then, they realized that wow, well, you know, perhaps we can we can we can make this, la- this. we can make yeah. this larger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, okay. Interesting. And in in that sense, right? Do you think that kind of similar innovation, you know, because you're like very. I just keep hearing U.S. companies. Right? Sure. But I also invest in the U.S. Yeah, That's why sure. I, I kind of I, I know what you're saying. Yep. What about Chinese companies? Yeah. I think a lot of people are very concerned about yeah. about Chinese companies. Yeah, so I mentioned uh, there's Meituan, right? Which, yeah, which, Meituan. Which, which, uh, which, which I lived I, in China before, the... so I know Meituan. Is yeah. Like, oh, every day I go Meituan, I find coupon and everything, and that's how they started. Yeah. Right. And yeah, yeah so uh, so Meituan is in the po- is in our portfolio. Tencent is in our portfolio, Tencent. and then so we do look at Chinese companies, and I think that there's a lot of innovation also going on in China. In fact, I think in many ways, uh, China is probably innovating at an even faster rate than the US. Like I think just recently. The Chinese government unveiled uh, its official government-backed digital currency. So mm. that is like a tokenized digital currency where the underlying technology is is kind of similar to like say Bitcoin or blockchain, right? And uh, so this I think just an example of like how rapid the, the the innovation is happening in 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 China. But I think like for for us at least uh, one of the key worries we have with China is that like Chinese companies often serve two masters, and uh, so. Um, that would be shareholders and also the authorities. And if there's any clash between those two, in the, I mean, in any clash in terms of the interests of those two, then I would I think that is the authorities that would nearly always win. And because of this, you know, um, it makes it just a bit harder. I think uh, to to kind of um, think about Chinese companies from a, from a risk perspective. And also there's the there's the uh, VIE structure, the variable interest entity structure, mm-hmm. where if you own Chinese companies, especially techno- Chinese technology or internet companies, you don't actually own the, the company itself, yeah. but you own like a shell company based in, I don't know, Cayman Islands or something that has a contract with the actual mainland company for, for the mainland company to kind of give all its economic yeah. benefits to it's that like shell. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but that structure has never actually been contested in Chinese courts before. Mm, mm, and... Mm. The Chinese government, I, from at least based on what I know so far, has never actually come out and say that you know we like this or we don't like this. Mm. So, um, you know, there's always the risk that one day government <laughs> may come in and say that you know I think that this this I, I don't like this VIE structure yeah. and then the whole thing collapses. Yeah, yeah. So so it, that is like an existen- existential risk. Though I think like the chances of something like that happening is like very very low, but mm. it is a risk though. So yeah, um, taking yeah. off. So. Yeah, I think that the Chinese Chinese companies are are, are really um, interesting and amazing. Like, um, uh, in fact, I think that there's a lot that Western companies uh, can learn from. I think uh, I came across a podcast by or, or article before by one of the uh, by some prominent venture capital firm. I can't remember the name now. Um, GGV. Uh, no, oh, might okay. be A sixteen Z maybe. But but the 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 article uh, was just mentioning that, like in China, you have all these technology companies have multiple sources of, of revenues. Like they, they are able to monetize in 
tremendously different ways. Like if you look at Meituan, there's just so many things to do. Right? Food mm. delivery does uh, it helps facilitate the purchases of coupons, vouchers, and so on yeah. for for like a, a massage parlor or a karaoke room or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I always go uh, very cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it has like car hailing, bike sharing, and so on and all that. So many different things that it's doing. So it's kind of like a super app, right? Where like your whole life can be can revolve around around the app. And the same goes for like WeChat. Right, it's, the, yeah. it's also like a super app where like your whole life can just be revolve around that. But then when you look at say WhatsApp run by Facebook, which I mean we also own shares of Facebook, but for now it's really just there's like a small WhatsApp for business kind of thing, and mm. but it's mostly just for people to send messages. Mm. Like Facebook today is still very much in a digital advertising business. Like the sheer majority of its revenues come from yeah, digital yeah. advertising. So there's just one source of sheer revenue. Sheer by, you mean like 98% or something? Like yeah, some, some, some <laughs> like nearly all. Yeah, yeah nearly, nearly all. all. Okay, that's, yeah. how, that's how predominant yeah, it is. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so, so, yeah, but like if you look at like the other technology companies in China, it's very rare to find one where they derive like um, nearly all of their revenues from just one source. So I think that's an, also an interesting aspect of Chinese companies where there's just like multiple avenues for growth. And, and, and that plays into like the idea of optionality which yeah. I talked about earlier, yeah. right? That where you have companies with uh, different ways to grow. So I think like Chinese companies are like just fascinating and, and, and interesting as well. Mm. Yeah, but just mindful of the regulatory risks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then a lot of them are getting pulled back to Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of double listings yep. Yep. going on and, you know, Chinese governments are trying to woo them back, like, yeah. essentially, right? So do you guys um, do the VIE structure directly from the US or do you guys like buy from the Hong Kong exchange? Or so is there a way to mitigate this VIE risk? So the VIE was set up to, to kind of circumvent Chinese laws that prevent yeah. foreign ownership of yeah. Chinese technology internet companies and other industries that the government deems to be essential to national yeah. interest. Yeah. Um, and because of this, right, I, I don't think it matters which exchange you buy the shares from because if you are a foreign owner, mm. you will still not be allowed to partake in the actual Companies, mm. economic interests. Mm. So you have to do it via the VIE structure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it doesn't matter where you buy from. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're, I don't think it matters. Yeah, we're all you know under this Chinese rule. Yeah. <laughs> fair. Fair. And you know, ba- just based on that thought, right? And going forward, right? It's like your search for companies is pretty vast, mm-hmm. right? It's not just in the US. You know, you're also very open to the Chinese companies. Although I've not really heard about Singapore companies yet. Mm-hmm. But how do you then? go about searching for all these companies mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm an enthusiast and honestly, it's quite tiring, mm-hmm. right? I keep searching, it's like, oh my God, you know, I'm not full-time, you're full-time, right? Mm-hmm. So then, how do you go about searching for these companies? Yeah, um, so I, I think I'm a bit fortunate in the sense that I started becoming, I started uh, investing f- uh, the, for the fun after uh, being, do- after doing this uh, for like nearly 10 years for my family. So I, and also, uh, before I started the fund, I was with uh, the Motley Fool Singapore. So, and as a as an investment writer and as a as a, a and as a co-leader of the investment team, so I already had like kind of like a library of mental knowledge about um companies about like good companies that that we that we are interested to invest in. So, I think uh, that helps. Uh, but in terms of the actual search process, even like during my days in the, with the Motley Fool, I don't think there's any like hard structure to it. It's not like say okay, I. I wake up in the morning and like, okay, I flip open the papers and this is the <laughs> section I should read or like, I, I go up to say, uh, my data provider and run a screen and say, okay, this is the screen I'm going to run today. It's not really, it's very, um, I would say organic, very, uh, very unstructured. Like, I spend a lot of my time reading. So I read a lot of different articles from, from interesting sources. And the interesting thing is that every now and then there will be just company names that will pop up. 
and I'll be like, oh, okay, like, you know, there's this article that talks about this particular company and like, okay, this is interesting. Let's dig further. And then, and then that's how the process starts. And yeah. I also, uh, I also read a lot on Twitter. Uh, I, I, I love, uh, uh, my God, you're on Twitter. I, I'm not on Twitter. I, uh, I use Twitter just as a, as a, as a reader. <laughs> yeah. I, I use Twitter as only to read. Yeah. Okay, I don't post okay. anything. Okay. Yeah. okay. I, there's this company in our fund called Medistim, which is a Norwegian company. Uh, it sells medical equipment that, uh, helps to image and measure the flow of blood. Right. And, um, when you, after selling the machines, uh, when, when surgeons use these machines during the surgeries that they conduct, they will have to pay for equipment that is considered like consumable in nature. Like, so like they have probes and, and sensors that they use that would have to be replaced after a certain amount of mm. usage. Yeah. So that creates this very beautiful razor and blades business model. So the razor would be the machines. Mm. The blades would then be like the probes that are mm. used during the surgeries to measure and, me- and image yeah. blood flow. It's like the dentist chair la. That, 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 that dental yeah. chair, right? That, that is the the razor, right? right? And then the blade is the thing. Oh, okay, okay, use, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if the if the blades are attached to the yeah. to directly. You gotta keep changing those. Oh, okay, things. yeah, so but yeah, you have same to keep changing, idea, right? Same, mm. similar idea. Yeah, mm. that's right. Yeah, so um, it's a company listed in Norway, um, and based in Norway. Um, and I came across it first on Twitter. Like there was this uh person that was posting a section of his annual report, like just a small section. And I was reading it, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, you know, you, I, I kind of remember which, what exactly the person posted, but um, that thing that was posted caught my eye, and I started digging further. And I was like, oh, okay, this looks like a really interesting business because, you know, you have like more than 60% of the world's um, what they call CAPG, which is coronary artery bypass grafting surgeries, which is the, the company's I main just thing. I lost you after coronary. Cor- <laughs> sorry, cor- yeah, so, so, it's okay, I lost you. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's okay. Think of it as like heart bypass surgery, yes, right? Yes. Or like a, yeah. Yes. So, like these surgeries, um, uh, more than sixty percent of the surgeries that are conducted today do not actually have any form of um, um, quality control or quality check. So, what surgeons do traditionally is to use their fingers to measure, uh, to use their fingers to touch like the veins or the, the the arteries after the surgery is conducted to kind of feel for pulse. If there's a pulse, they think that there's blood flow, but that is actually not a very uh, not a very good way to determine the success of the operation. Very few few, huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> correct. So, like so Medistim's machines come, in, come come into play here because uh, they help to actually measure and image the blood flow within this mm. this uh, this arteries and veins and and. And so they give uh, the the medical professionals a much better idea of like how successful the surgery has been, yeah. So so I thought like you know it is a much better solution than what is uh, traditionally been done, and at the same time penetration rate is still low. And more importantly, the company has like effective monopoly because uh, I mentioned that more than sixty percent of the surgeries today don't have quality control. Of the say thirty plus or so that percent that uh, where quality control measures are in place, like. 80 or 90% of it is done via Medistim's machines. Mm. Yeah. So, so I thought like, you know, that, that was like just a very interesting, uh, looked like a very interesting investment opportunity for us. Yeah. So, so yeah, this is just how example of like how we kind of stumbled upon yeah. like an, yeah. like an investment. Yeah. Yeah. On Twitter. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, so I use Twitter a lot as well. Yeah. That's cool. You know, like a lot of companies that you're talking about, every time you talk about it, it's very um, qualitative. Mm-hmm. Right, it's mm-hmm. very story. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, this company, they're doing this. You know, yeah, I get the whole like, there's a market share. We're trying to innovate on something, but it's very quite qualitative, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, in the discussion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have this idea that you mm-hmm. know, it's like stock picking. It's like you punch a few numbers in, and then it's like, okay, this price, ah, huh, you buy, you buy at this price, and then you like guarantee make money. But that, but just that's not the reality from my personal experience. 
So, so I think that there there are many different roads to Rome. I would say when mm. it comes to mm. the stock market, like just very different ways of making money. Like mm. there are people who are able to do that, you know, punch in all the numbers and make sense of just the numbers alone, and they can do that well. Mm. Uh, but for me personally, that's not an area where I've done well in. So like for me, um, it is the qualitative understanding of businesses where I find the most comfort in, where mm. I find the where where I think I'm able to. Uh, uh, perform better in, mm. yeah. So so that is what I um have stuck with. So, um yeah. So I think like there are people who are just able to you know just depend purely on the numbers and and able to make good investment decisions just purely on the numbers and yeah. I think ultimately people have to find um what works for them. Yeah. Fair. All roads lead to Rome. And in your recent article, right? Mm-hmm. There's this one reason because I you know I have you man. I must read your blog man, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> in your recent article, you talk about this thing called uh, there's a divergence between the stock market and the economy, uh-huh. right? Um, and you know just to let the cat out, you don't agree with that, right? Essentially, right? So mm-hmm. then, can you just kind of give us a better idea because all these number punching, you know, and this mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, there's a whole channel, a network out there mm-hmm. talking about like mm-hmm. you know. This 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 dichotomy and you know, mm-hmm. the separation between the economy and the stock market, yep. right? So, what is your thought on this? So, in um, I was I I've, I went back more than hundred years ago to look at this thing called the Panic of nineteen oh seven. So, it was a panic. Uh, it it was a period of a uh, very severe economic distress for the United States. Um, it was uh, in fact like the situation was so bad that it was one of the key motivations behind the U.S. government's decision to set up the Federal Reserve in nineteen thirteen. So the panic of 1907 happened in late 1907. Then a few years later, the Federal Reserve was set up. Right. And during that period, uh, there was just severe economic contraction in the US that lasted nearly throughout 1908. But what's interesting is that if you look at the way the US stock market performed, um, the, the stock market basically uh, went one way, which was up in 1908. <laughs> and then it spent the next uh, eight or nine years, you know, just uh, steadily uh, climbing up. Just going up. Yeah. So I think like, there have always been cases where you know the the stock market does not seem to reflect what's going on in the economy. But what so what what I was trying to say in the article is that I think it's normal, and if we look deeper behind today's context, like the that disconnect, we realize that like the the stock prices of the the industries and the businesses that are indeed getting hurt badly by COVID have actually fallen by a lot. Yes. Right. And but the 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 important thing here is that they they tend to be small companies. And so they do not actually get reflected in the prominent market indexes. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's an index weightage in, on, on those Yeah, curves, yeah, right? correct. Mm. So the, the S&P 500, um, because of the way it's constructed and just by sheer chance, the technology companies tend to be the ones that have, that are, uh, that have a larger weighting mm. right, within, mm. within the index. Um, but these tech companies, because of the, the current context we're in today, they are the ones with the businesses that are actually doing okay. Or in mm. fact, you know, or it could be even doing very well. They're thriving. Right? Yeah. The numbers are up. Yeah, right? yeah. It's yeah. fundamentally very strong. Because of the way these businesses have performed, then you kind of like have... It's natural, I guess, then that the the market indexes will also be mm. doing pretty okay. Yeah. Right, because if the index heavier component... If the index's heavier components are like the companies that are doing well then why shouldn't the index be doing okay at the very yeah. least? So that was, like I think, the gist of the, of the article. Yeah. And we, I think if we also look back at empirical studies about uh, the performance of uh, stock markets and economies, you realize that there's very little uh, correlation, correlation between mm. 
the, the performance of the economy and the stock market. Like, um, no, for the sake of uh, listeners who may not have read my article, um, there's this example I used uh, about China. And so, um, like, in the, in the 20 years ended 2013, China's economy, I think, grew by, I don't know, 12 or 15%, something like that, per year, which was, like, phenomenally strong growth. But, the, but its stock market actually declined by, I think, 2% per year over the exact same period. And I think the reason why that could potentially happen, I, I don't know the reason why it happened. I don't know the exact reason why it happened, but one potential and likely reason that I think that occurred is because if you look back at, again, what is the stock market? The stock market essentially is made up of a collection of companies, right? Stock prices will effectively be governed by the underlying business performances of these companies. So a company may be able to grow its revenue, Right, and that's how economic growth is measured because economic growth is essentially the or the output of a com- of a country's uh, companies, and that is the revenue of the companies that are generated. But the profit that is generated by the company may not act, may not be growing because you can have very good revenue growth, but if your cost controls are poor, or if your taxes are high, you know, then the profits will not um will not accrue to shareholders. Mm-hmm. And then there's another factor as well, which is like the per share growth of in, in earnings or profits. Because ultimately, the share prices will reflect the per share changes in the business performances of, of companies, right? And so you may have like, say, very strong revenue growth, but if you keep diluting shareholders, then there's no per share growth. Yeah. And so the economy may grow in terms of like the growth in the revenue, but that may not be reflected in the underlying business performance, mm. right? And then it's also important to realize that the economy is a measurement of the output of all companies, whereas stocks and the stock market reflects the business performance of a group of companies. And so what it means is that the, the overall performance of the economy may be very different from like the, the performance of the individual companies. As an example, right, like if you have a, a country that keeps having new companies appear over time, the GDP of the, of the country, uh, all things equal, would increase. Because if every new company comes out and is able to produce new revenue and existing companies' revenue remains unchanged, then GDP will increase. But if the revenues of the existing companies don't increase, then the stock prices of these companies will not increase as well, right? Yeah. And then that will get reflected by a stagnant stock price. Yeah. 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 So so I think like there is a big um difference between the economy and the stock market yeah. for many countries. Mm. Yeah. And I, I also think like the world is a very flat world these days, like today, right? It's like a lot of businesses are everywhere. They're international. And if you look across all the other indexes, a lot of them are still down, right? It's, mm-hmm. all, it's predominantly the, the US that's, that's you know, mm-hmm. powering this thing. And mm-hmm. once again, back to the idea of what is the composite of the index, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of big tech companies are there and their business are global. Mm-hmm. It's not unique to just mm-hmm. the US economy, right? So. No, I, I think it, like if you bring it back to Singapore, right? Mm-hmm. It's also very interesting. If you look at Singapore's index, the Straits Times index, right? There are 30 companies and the biggest ones in there are the banks and <laughs> property companies and the telcos. telcos. None of them are doing well, yeah. right? They're all struggling. And therefore the STI is down significantly. Yeah. But then you have like companies like, uh, Singapore listed companies like Riverstone, like Top Glove, which are both uh, rubber glove makers mm. that have seen their businesses just soar because mm. of the this huge increase in demand for, for, for rubber gloves, right? And their stock prices reflect that. Then you have like iFast, which is this um, investment products distrib- yeah. online investment products distributor. Again, the, the share price has, 
has soared yeah. because because the business has done well. Like I think in uh, the most recent quarter, uh, third quarter of twenty twenty, if I if I remember correctly, IFAS profit was up by I think hundred and fifty percent or something. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you know when you have things like this happening, I think it's again very clear that like you know the the stock market and the economy are not the same thing. And more importantly, right, individual companies are also not the same thing as the stock market. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, man. Like, what well, this? Just so much going on. It, it's <laughs> like it's, I get it, right? It's, I think fundamentally, you you keep going back to the same idea, which is like the stock market is just a place to transact different companies. Yeah. Right. And the index is a composite of all these companies. Yeah. The economy is a separate thing. Yeah. Right. So I think for our listeners, that's the baseline you need to understand. Yeah. Right. Over time, you will understand the intricacies, how they interact. Yeah. But, but that is the the chim chim yeah. stuff. Correct. Correct. Take some time to learn. You're not gonna compound everything. You know, in one <laughs> podcast, book <laughs> And so just kind of end off the discussion, sure. right? You've shared a lot. You've done a lot. You've, you've come all the way from enthusiast to where you are, sure. right? Why do you still do this? Okay, by this, do you mean like me, you know, still like being still involved thinking, in the yeah, financial markets? Well? Yeah, still do the financial thing. Because a lot of people, they just want to make money. And sure. then, you know, they have their own like retirement. And yeah, they sure. right? okay. So yeah, why do you still do it? There are, there are a few things to, to unpack here, right? So the first is um, that I, I really enjoy the process of uh, investing. To me, I, I see investing as like a intellectual challenge. You know, you look at a company and it's like a puzzle. It's like you've, you've got to figure it out. Like, okay, is this is this going to be a company that can do well in the long run or is this going to be a company that will not be able to do well in the long run? And and the most, most important puzzle is the question you have to ask yourself is that, am I being honest with myself in terms of my ability to analyze this company? And if I don't have the ability to analyze this company, then that's, you know, like... A, a sign that says, oh, there's something new for me to learn, right? So I, I really enjoy the whole um, in, uh, whole intellectual process. The, the, the money part is, um, I, I think it's important that it's important to, to make money. You know, you, you do need a roof over your head and you do need to, to eat. But it's not, it's really not the most important thing in, in my life. Uh, so for me, investing is a passion. It's not so much a, it's not so much a vehicle to, to, to make money. It's really something that I, just very um, passionate about. Um, and then the second thing is that I think um, I entered the investment industry with the idea that I wanted to be in a role where I could help, um, where I could positively impact the lives of people. And I think that that is important. And I think it's just very important for me to continue doing that, like to, to be able to continue helping uh, people. And beca- and so because of this, like I don't think I will ever stop. Like because um, the intellectual pleasure from just, you know, um, Investing, I think will will always be there, and then I think there will always be the need to go out there to continue um, helping people. That's one of the reasons why uh, me and my uh, business partner Jeremy Chia, who's also a longtime friend of mine, um, why we set up an investment blog as well called the Good Investors, because the the blog is like for us is really it's a passion project. Like we write it only so that we can help to. Um, uh, educate uh, investors. It's also why when we for Compounder Fund, why we're running it transparently is because we want to be able to to have the fund be also a source for like uh, investor education, mm. right? So um, for us, it's just this whole investing and and, and thing is is more that is way it's just way more than just uh, uh money involved. And so so this just gives us like the 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 fire within you know to just to just continue, yeah. Okay, thanks for sharing. Thanks for yeah. coming on the show. No, no problem. Thanks for having Happy me. Happy to have you and I'm sure everyone learned a lot from you today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. Thanks.
I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us, will help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have some interesting thoughts to share or know someone that you want to hear more from, reach out to us through hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week and always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear and sustainable for all. Okay, so I hope you learned some interesting stuff from Searching. He's a very cool guy. Check out his blog. And yeah, if you you know sophisticated investor, you want him to help you manage your money, compounder fund. There you go. Either way, we are not here to recommend you or, you know, <laughs> everything is for educational entertainment purposes only. Yes, very important. Must keep repeating this, yeah? And next week, right? So we, in this theme, this month of like investing and whatnot, um, there's so many things to talk about. And we have enough of like stocks and stocks and stocks and stocks. So next week, we're going to talk about bonds. We're going to have Chun Ting, right? CEO of Money Owl to come on and talk about how she see bonds. Like give us a lesson about bonds, right? How do you like look at bonds and can you actually make money from bonds in such a negative territory at this moment in time, right? Everybody here like, oh, negative interest rate, negative interest rate. And still can make money man, from bonds, right? So is there a position for bonds in your portfolio? How do you plan to go about managing, you know, your own portfolio with a tool that is not usually talked about, but, you know, like people talk about it, but very briefly, right? So that's what we're going to tackle next week and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.